uh, the Bible to Psalm 34. And as you turn there, I, I wonder if you have known people uh, who have done with their lives um, what this poor lady that I read about had done with her life. This, this woman, I, I'm not, well, I'll go ahead and t- I'm sure you've already, you've probably heard of the show, so I'll go ahead and tell you uh, the name of the article. This poor ro- woman wrote this, this article that was published uh, in, a, in a newspaper, and then I found it online, and, and the title of the article was, How Sex and the City Ruined My Life. And, and it's, of course, alluding to this, this television show that, that was on HBO. I, I've never seen the show. I've just read about it in this article. Um, this poor woman modeled her life on what she had she- seen in that television show. And, and the lead character in that television show was named Carrie Bradshaw, and she was a gossip columnist for a newspaper in New York City, and she led a promiscuous life. And so this poor woman who grew up watching this television show, learned from the show, that's what glamour is. That's what the good life looks like. And so this poor woman moved to New York City, got a job as a gossip columnist, and lived a promiscuous life. She modeled her approach to life over what she had, off of what she had seen on television. And I've known people who have done this with soap operas or with sitcoms. They, they see this and they think that's what the good life looks like. And then they, they, they learn from this portrayal what to value. And they learn from the portrayal what morality looks like. So they, they derive their understanding of what's valuable, what's moral, and, and what, what looks glamorous from these portrayals on television. Well, the Lord has given us the scriptures... Because he wants us to learn from the scriptures what to value, how to live, and what the good life looks like. And we have in Psalm 34 a picture of of David in a time of difficulty. And David, David is showing us what it looks like to learn from earlier scripture how to rely on the Lord in a time of great difficulty. So the first thing I'd like to do is draw your attention to the superscription of Psalm 34, which reads, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Uh, This superscription refers to the, the, the narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 21, When David fled from Saul, Saul was trying to kill him, and I don't know why David thought this would be a good idea, but David thought it would be a good idea to flee to the town of Gath, which was where Goliath was from. If I had killed their champion, I don't think I would flee to their town, but that's what David does. And and curiously, interestingly, the, the king of Gath, his name is not Abimelech, the name that we find here. His name is Achish, Achish the king of Gath. And that introduces a question, why would David, I I take it that David, this is a psalm of David, I take it that David wrote this psalm, and I take it that David knew the king's name, and I take it that if David had somehow made a mistake, someone would have corrected it, so I don't think this is mistaken, I don't think this invalidates the superscription, I think this was done on purpose. So it prompts the question, why would David refer to Achish, the king of Gath, 
as Abimelech. And there have been different proposals to explain this. One proposal is that maybe Abimelech is like a title that all Philistine kings take. That could be the case, that all the Philistine kings are referred to as Abimelech. I think it's more likely, however, that David is referring to Achish as Abimelech because he wants to align Achish with the Abimelechs that troubled Abraham and Isaac. You remember in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham has dealings with an Abimelech, the king of Gera, a Philistine king, and that Abimelech actually, uh, it, it, it's, it's one of the occasions where Abraham passes Sarah off as his sister. And then a few chapters later in Genesis 26, Isaac does the same thing with another Philistine king named Abimelech. He passes um, his wife Rebekah off as his sister. Now, by doing this, I think that David is drawing attention to the way that he is in the promised land, as Abraham and Isaac were, and he's having difficulty with the Philistines, as Abraham and Isaac did, and the, the Philistine who gave him difficulty, David, is aligned with the Philistines who gave Abraham and Isaac difficulty, which also aligns David with Abraham and Isaac. And on that occasion, you remember the story, um, David, he's fleeing from Saul for his life, and he comes to the Philistine territory, and initially they're, they're happy to receive him. But then some of the, the counselors to the king say, is not this David, of whom they sing in their songs, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And David realizes, I'm in trouble. And so he, he lets the spittle run down his beard, he acts like a madman, and Achish says, do I, do I lack madmen that I need another one? And David escapes from their hands. And it seems that in response to that difficulty, David says, here in verses 1 through 4, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Now, this indicates that David, in that moment, with the Philistines, was committed to blessing the Lord. As Saul was trying to kill him, David was committing, committed to blessing the Lord. We, we want to be people who, whatever our circumstances look like, we're ready to bless the Lord. This is what it looks like to obey James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. So, Lord willing, later this, this afternoon, I will be driving back to Louisville. I really don't want there to be an accident on 71 causing the highway to back up as it often does. I really hope that doesn't happen. If that happens, I need to be ready to commit myself to bless the Lord at all times. There, there, there's, a, there's a beloved couple in our church who in the spring of 2020, right, right as the world shut down with COVID, they learned that their little girl, who at the time was seven years old, had a terminal form of cancer. And the doctors uh, gave her 12 to 18 months. She wound, little Rena wound up living a little bit longer than 18 months, but she's now passed away. And this family was a remarkable example of blessing the Lord at all times. These are the kind of people that we want, to do, we want to be. I will bless the Lord, David says, at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And then he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. So what David is saying is, I'm not boasting in myself. 
In other words, David is not saying, did you see how clever I was to get away from Achish, the king of Gath? Did you see how I did that thing with the spittle running down? Did you see how, how uh, in, ingenious I was to come up with that plan to escape? No, David is saying, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. And, and this is what we see consistently of David in the book of, Sa- of Samuel. He is not boasting in himself, he's boasting in the Lord. And this stands in contrast with people like Saul and uh, uh, Absalom, David's son, both of whom set up monuments to themselves. They want to boast in themselves. David is saying, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. And then he says, let the humble hear and be glad. And then he, he invites uh, the people who align themselves with him, the people who trust in the Lord, to join him in verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And at this point, it's almost as though David is now, after the, that sort of introduction, he's now going to begin to refer to and describe the, difficulty, the difficulties that he faced in that situation when he fled to the city of Gath to escape the murderous Saul. Verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And we can, we can imagine what David's fears were. I mean, can you imagine uh, being seated in the presence of the king, perhaps playing the harp to soothe his rage, and all of a sudden, you, out of the corner of your eye, you see the king snatch up his spear and hurl it at you, and you're just able to get out of the way, and it's pinned to the wall behind you. That would be a terrifying experience. And then you get away from the king's court, and the rumors start coming to you that the king has gathered 3,000 crack troops of Israel to chase you through the wilderness and kill you. That would be a fearsome prospect. And so... For whatever reason, he flees to Gath, and he's now in enemy territory. We can imagine all of these fears that David faces. And his response to those fears, he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then when we come to verse 5, we come to a very interesting statement. I'm going to read the statement, and then I want to reflect with you on where David gets this idea. David says in verse 5, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, I want want to invite you to, to sort of open your mind to the Bible and think, where in the Bible do I know of someone who looked to the Lord and his face became radiant? And, and I don't know if your mind goes to Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, where Moses has been on the mountain with the Lord. He's, he's been receiving from the Lord the renewed covenant after the breaking of the covenant with the sin of the golden calf. And he comes down off the mountain and he doesn't know that his face is shining. But I think that's what David is alluding to here. And, and it's just interesting to see what David does with that mosaic Uh, example of the shining face. He doesn't say something like this. Only the prophets who encounter the direct presence of God will enjoy a radiant face. No, David takes Moses' experience and he extends it to everyone who looks to the Lord. Now, I don't think that David is saying 
that if you look to the Lord, your face is literally going to radiate like Moses is literally shown. But I do think he's saying something like, if you look to the Lord, the Lord is going to encourage you. The Lord is going to give you hope. The Lord is going to give you joy. And so spiritually speaking, you will have a radiant face because you looked to the Lord. So this mosaic experience from Exodus 34, it's it's as though David is offering it on the basis of his own experience and his own uh, looking to the Lord and being delivered, as he just said in verse 4. David is inviting the people of God to enter into this with him. Those who look to him are radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. And then he goes back to his own personal testimony, his own experience in verse 6. This poor man. Now notice here that David is referring to himself as this poor man. Which is remarkable because David is the son of Jesse who was the anointed king of the people of God. And he's humbly referring to himself as this poor man. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And then in verse 7, before I read verse 7, I want to remind you of another incident from the Exodus. So I think that at a number of points in this psalm, David is informed by the narrative in the book of Exodus. Not only the shining face in verse 5, but also you remember that when the people of Israel came out of Egypt after the night of Passover, after the firstborn of Egypt were struck down. They came out of Egypt and they made their way out to the shores of the Red Sea. And they get to the Red Sea and here comes the army of Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 14 verses 19 and 20, Moses narrates that the the pillar of cloud that was going before the people of Israel and the angel of the Lord, who was also before the people, moved from being in front of Israel to being behind them so that Egypt did not come near Israel all night long. And I think that that experience of having the angel of the Lord go from being in front to being behind to protect Israel is what David has in mind when he says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And delivers them. Now here again, note what David has done. David has not said something like this. Only as the corporate people of God can you expect the protection of the angel of the Lord. No. And he doesn't say, only if you're Moses or only if you're David can you expect the protection of the angel of the Lord. No. David takes that experience of the people of Israel and it's as though he says, all of God's people who fear him can experience this. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So in, in Exodus 34, 5 and in Exodus 34, 7, I think David takes Moses' experience on Mount Sinai and then the people's experience being protected by the angel of the Lord at the Red Sea and holds it out to the people of God. And, and it's as though... You know, David is not saying something like this, fear God. And he's not saying, look to him. It's more like he's saying, look how good it is to look to him. Those who look to him are radiant. Don't you want to do that? And look how good it is to fear God. 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Don't you want to fear God? And and then the offer comes again, the invitation, the exclamation in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man, and here we we have language that's reminiscent of the end of Psalm 2, you know, blessed are all who, who take refuge in him. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And here again, this language of taste and see, I don't know if this reminds you of anything in the book of Exodus, but I think of Exodus chapter 24, where Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel, they go up on on the mountain where the Lord is, and, and in verse 11 it says, they saw the God of Israel and they ate and they drank. And it's as though as they've entered into this covenant, they enjoy a covenant meal in communion and fellowship with the Lord himself. And David is saying, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's like he's saying, experience this for yourself. Verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. When we think about the fear of the Lord, we we should think of something that actually produces safety. The fear of the Lord produces safety. In the winter of 2000, at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, uh, my family and I, we, we went to Colorado to spend time with, with extended family. And then while we were in Colorado, we were there for a, a number of days, we drove up to South Dakota to visit uh, some dear family friends. And this is the farthest uh, north uh, in, in, the, in the continental United States that I've been, South Dakota, and it was really cold. I mean, I think it was minus 17 up there when we got there. And our friends, they took us out on this frozen lake, and, and they were taking us to this frozen lake near Custer, South Dakota, because in one of the National Treasure movies, the, 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 the rock where the guy puts his hand into the rock and pulls a lever and all these things happen, it, it's, it's on this frozen lake. And And at the time, my youngest son, this would have been uh, four years ago, so he was about four years old, and he had these awful snow boots on. So he's only four, he's not hugely secure on his feet to begin with, and he's wearing these snow boots that are no good. And as we are walking across this lake, he is slipping and falling, and, and finally I just grabbed his hand and basically had to hold uphold him by the hand so that he would not fall flat on his face over and over again or go to his knees over and over again as we made our way across this lake. I mean, the, you know, the, the ice on the lake went I don't know how deep, but it was really hard and it was really thick. And we get out to this rock and we start climbing up this rock. And I, I am a person who does not like ledges at all. And, and so, the, you know, the front side of this rock is a, a pretty gentle slope. The back side is a sheer drop, like 30 feet down. We're, we're up about three stories high. And near the ledge, there's, there's, there are some leaves, and there's some snow, and there's ice. And, and we get up on that rock, and I, kinda, I can see that that ledge is there, and I don't want to be anywhere near that ledge. And, and my son, who was in these horrible snow boots... I just grabbed him and pulled him close to myself. And my friend said to me, 
Yeah, if he goes over there, he dies. That's what the fear of the Lord is like. If you transgress, his holiness breaks out against you and you die. That's the fear of the Lord. So you're you're afraid of his holiness, but you know if I stay within the boundaries, I'm safe. This is is how the fear of the Lord works. And, And it's as though David is saying, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. So that's my four year old. My, my now 14-year-old was about 10 at the time, and he's a real, a real daredevil. He's a guy who, he doesn't mind ledges. And so I'm like pleading with him, oh, fear the Lord, you know, get back over here with, with me in the safe place. This is how David is talking. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The, the, the young lions, you know, in, in Psalm 22, David is describing the way that, that, that in, in 22.16, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers. And then later in, in Psalm 22.21, he says, save me from the mouth of the lion. It may be that he's referring metaphorically to human enemies when he speaks of the young lions. I mean, this may have been like a gang, a a band of people who referred to themselves as the young lions, and they're David's enemies. And David could be looking at these wicked people and saying, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Whatever the case, whether these are physical lions or human beings, whatever, this promise here, those who seek, seek the Lord lack no good thing is something that we should lay hold of. This is what you've got to believe when you are tempted to transgress in order to get what you think you need or, or to transgress in order to, to experience some gratification. You need to believe those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You've got to cling to that promise in order to obey. Believing the promise will enable obedience. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. If I transgress, I could be ashamed. But if I seek the Lord, if I look to him, I won't be ashamed. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He'll be my protection. So verse 11, come, O children. Notice David is now addressing people, and he's saying, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And I I think what David is doing is he's saying, if you find yourself in a situation where someone like Saul, powerful, accurate, armed, he's throwing spears at you, I will teach you to fear God in that moment, not Saul. If you find yourself in a situation where you're in enemy territory and the Philistines are ready to seize you, fear the Lord in that moment, not the Philistines. The fear of the Lord, as John Owen and others have said, is to drive out every other fear. I think this is the way David is talking here in Psalm 34, 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And then... 
in verses 15 and 16, it's almost as though David returns to the idea articulated up in verse 5. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Now, whereas in verse 5, it's, it's people looking to the Lord. Now it's the Lord looking to people in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Now in the Psalms, you don't have to be categorically, absolutely righteous to be identified with the righteous. In the Psalms, you know, David will say things like, um, um, acquit me of great transgression, and then I will be blameless at the end of Psalm 19. And he'll speak in Psalm 1 of the congregation of the righteous. So people, I submit, people who believe God's promises, repent of their sin, trust in the Lord, these are the righteous. And Psalm 34, 15 is saying, the eyes of the Lord are toward their right, the righteous, his ears toward their cry. But, verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now, in this psalm, we've got righteous people who I, I think are like David's children. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Righteous people who are aligned with David. And then we've got wicked people who are opposed to David. And, and th- these two groups, the righteous and the wicked, are, are going to be uh, relevant to the rest of the psalm. In, in, the, in the broader context of David's life and Israel's history, um, the righteous would be those who sided with David in the conflict with Saul. The wicked would be those, like Doeg the Edomite, who decide, I'm going to join Saul in trying to kill David. And you remember, Doeg slaughtered the priests of Israel. Look at verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Note the plural. The righteous people, the group of people, cry for help. The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Uh, Look at how similar this is to verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So it's like from verse 6, this is what God did for me. Now, this is what God does for all the righteous people who align with David. So notice that with the righteous people, David is their, their spokesperson. He's their representative. He's their leader. And then Psalm 34, verse 18, is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. I would encourage you to note this verse. uh, Note it down. If you don't have this verse memorized, I would encourage you to commit this verse to memory. And then when when you get the phone call that none of us want from a friend uh, reporting that uh, the scans don't look good or uh, that the... I mean, recently, um, one of my, I, I, I was serving a church in, in Houston, and uh, one of the guys that, is not, that uh, was a deacon at the church at the time, he later became an elder, um, I got word that his son was in a horrible car accident on I-71, on the way between here and Louisville, and um, he was in the hospital in Louisville, and my mind went immediately to this verse, which I shared with that brother. Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's the kind of God the God of the Bible is. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In the last week or two, a a member of our church, 
I got word that the wife had gone to the doctor and the scans looked terrible. Praise God, the scans, uh, they, they did further analysis and it, there is no cancer. But it looked like there was. I made recourse to this verse. I immediately start texting this brother, communicating this verse to him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It's a beautiful statement of God's character. A beautiful promise that in our need, God draws near. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And then in verse 19, David says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now notice how in verse 17, the righteous was plural. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And again, I would suggest to you that the singular is David, and the plural is the group of people that are aligned with David. Now, I want to skip over verse 20 and read verses 21 and 22, and then come back and think about verse verse 20 with you. Verse 21, David asserts, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Now, I think this is similar to David's saying of Saul. When You remember those occasions when Saul is trying to kill David, and they find Saul alone in a cave or asleep on the ground, and one of David's men says, The Lord has given him into your hand. Let me go over there and strike him dead. And, and again and again on these occasions, David says, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. And then David affirms, he will go out and the Lord will cause him to fall in battle or his day will come in some other way. The Lord's going to deliver me, but I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. David is saying the same kind of thing here in verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. It's like David is saying, the Lord is going to take care of my enemies. The Lord is going to deal with them. I'm not going to deal with them. The Lord will deal with them. And then by the same token, verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. And that word redeems is an Exodus word. The Lord redeemed his people at the Exodus from Egypt. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him, that's the language of verse Verse 8 again, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So in verses 21 and 22, David says, basically, my enemies are going to be defeated. The Lord's going to take care of them. And the people who are the Lord's servants, the righteous, the people that align with me, they're going to be redeemed. The Lord is going to redeem them. So in, in the historical situation, I think David is saying something like this. Saul's trying to kill me, the Philistines don't like me, but God's going to bring me through this. And when God brings me through this and establishes me as king, everybody aligned with me is also going to be delivered, and everybody opposed to me is going to be defeated. Now look at verse 20. David writes there in Psalm 34, verse 20, he keeps all his bones. This is speaking of the righteous one in verse 19. So to start in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him, the individual singular righteous man. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He, the Lord, keeps all his, the righteous man's, bones. 
not one of them is broken. And this verse is really similar to Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, where in the instructions for what you do with the Passover lamb, the the instruction is given, not one of his bones shall be broken. Now, I don't think that David is saying in Psalm 34, verse 20, Moses prophesied that God would keep my bones from being broken. I don't think that's what's happening. I do think something like this is is happening. I think David is saying something like this. The people of Israel were faced with an overwhelmingly powerful enemy in the the nation of Egypt and in Pharaoh that, that was keeping them enslaved. And God delivered them, God redeemed them through the Passover lamb and the bones of the Passover lamb were unbroken. And I think David is is saying something like, Saul is an overwhelmingly powerful enemy and the Philistines are an overwhelmingly powerful enemy. And I'm a little bit like Moses and the people that are aligned with me are a little bit like the nation of Israel. And in the same way that God redeemed Israel at the Exodus... God is going to redeem his servants, verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. He's going to preserve the people that are aligned with me through this persecution and difficulty. And and then, here's what I would propose. It's like David puts himself in the place of the Passover lamb. It's like David says, in the same way that the bones of the Passover lamb were unbroken, I'm going to come through this with, with unbroken bones. And When the Lord keeps all my bones and not one of them is broken, then affliction will slay the wicked. It's almost like the firstborn of Egypt being struck down. And verse 22, the Lord will have redeemed the life of his servants. Now, I think that's all David is doing with this. I don't think David is is making a broader suggestion about how he will somehow be the Passover lamb that is slain. I think he's making a broad, kind of wide-angle analogy between the Lord delivering him from an overwhelming enemy and the way the Lord delivered Israel from an overwhelming enemy. And then this Exodus imagery is applied to David's situation. But keep a finger here and look over at John chapter 19. In John 19, you know the story. They come to Jesus... And he's already dead. And so instead of breaking his legs, they pierce him with the spear. And in John 19, verse 36, John writes, These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now here again, John is not claiming that when Moses wrote those words in Exodus 12, 46... Moses was directly predicting that the Messiah's bones would not be broken. John is claiming the pattern of salvation at the Exodus is fulfilled, that that whole pattern of events is fulfilled through the death of Jesus in which, like the Passover lamb, the bones of Jesus were, were brought through. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Were brought through unbroken like those of the Passover Lamb. So I think that what's happening here is David has already looked back at the Exodus and said, as the Messiah, the King of Israel, it's almost like I'm in the place of the Passover lamb and the Lord is going to redeem the people in my day as he did at the Exodus. And then John sees what David has done, 
understands the Exodus, and then John says this whole pattern comes to fulfillment in what happens with the Lord Jesus and them not breaking his bones. So again, I don't think that John is claiming Exodus 12, 46 is predicting that the Messiah's bones would not be broken. No, it's a broader claim about the whole pattern of events that took place at the Exodus from Egypt. But don't miss this. At the Exodus, God's people were saved through the death of the Passover lamb. In David's day, those who feared the Lord, those who were ready to repent of their sin, those who were ready to pursue the Lord, seek the Lord, and seek to walk in holiness, trusting the promises of God, they are, their lives, Exodus, uh, Psalm 34, 22, are redeemed, and they're saved, and the, the enemies of God are defeated. And then in Jesus' day, because of his death and resurrection, because people are prepared to trust wholly in what Christ has accomplished in fulfillment of the exodus from Egypt, those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be put to shame. Those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, Romans ten thirteen, will be saved. This is the definitive act of God, the work of God to bring about the salvation of God's people in fulfillment of the patterns, in fulfillment of the prophecies, in fulfillment of the exodus from Egypt and everything that took place in David's life, the law and the prophets point to Christ. And, and Christ is our Savior. Not one of his bones were broken, and yet he bore the full wrath of God poured out on the cross so that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And, and so if you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, what, what we want you to know is that he has accomplished salvation. And we want you to know that if you will turn from all the things that are killing you and ruining your life and look to Christ and place your hope and trust in him, God will gladly save you. That's what we want you to know. If you're here and you're a believer, I hope that you see the, the depth and the majesty of the build-up to the Lord Jesus. And I hope you see the brilliance, not only of David as an interpreter of the Exodus, but also of John as an interpreter of what God has fulfilled in Christ. And I hope that your, your, your interest in the Scriptures is renewed to draw you back again and again to the Bible, to read these things afresh, to see more than you have seen before in the study of them. And, and I hope that also you hear this call, these calls from Psalm 34. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces will never be put to shame. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The young lions suffer want, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what you have done across history and in Christ. We thank you for the way that you saved your people at the Exodus. 
for the way that you delivered David, for the way that you gave him insight and understanding into what you had done in Moses' day, and for the way that he presents himself as an installment in this pattern of events that typifies what you would accomplish in the Lord Jesus. And Father, we praise you for this great salvation that you have worked, and we pray that you would cause us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts and be ready to speak of what he has done for us. And Lord, we pray that you would cause your word to call us back to yourself again and again, to look to you and be radiant, to taste and see your goodness. Lord, give us a new appetite for you and eradicate from us any appetite that we have for sin. Lord, make us holy by the power of what you've done in Christ, by the working of the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Lord, use that power to transform us, we pray, into his image. And we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.